This morning's scripture reading comes from Joshua chapter 3, verses 1 through chapter 4, verse 7. You can follow along on the screen or in um, your Bibles as I read. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way that you should, shall go. For you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come, and, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of the harvest. The waters coming down from above stood up and rose, stood and rose up in a heap very far away. At Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down towards the Sea of Arabah, the sea salt, the salt sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan." from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, 
whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. This is the word of the Lord. My name is Nathan, for anyone who hasn't met me, and um, my wife, Mary Margaret, and I have been members of this church for about seven years, and uh, it's just been a, a joy to be a part of Christ Redeemer Church. And I'm also a part of a nonprofit called 25 Project, and we are so grateful that 25 Project is a gospel partner of Christ Redeemer. Um, the name comes from Matthew 25. There we see Jesus talks about ministering to the vulnerable of this world, and that is the heart of 25 Project. We serve in four countries and also locally. So we work in Sierra Leone, which is in West Africa. We work in South Africa. We work in South Asia. And then we work in the Dominican Republic and the Caribbean. And then locally, it's a privilege to serve in Melissa at Melissa Community Outreach. We have a food pantry there that we serve out of. And so the mission of 25 Project is uh, something I've been a part of for 10 years, and uh, God has, has been growing my heart for uh, his uh, vulnerable children around the world and, and their families. And our mission is this. The 25 Project mission is to transform the lives of vulnerable children through Jesus. Every child deserves a home, and we enable individuals to provide for a child's physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. We currently serve about 500 children around the world, but just 11 years ago when this ministry started, there was just a handful of children in Sierra Leone, about 20. And so it's been a, a privilege to work with this ministry, to be a partner of this church, and today's text really highlights what we point these children to. It's one thing to meet physical needs, to overcome barriers that we face but it's a whole other thing to know the God and King who enables us to overcome that we face. Just recently, I was in the Dominican Republic, and uh, I met a little boy named Jesus, or in our wording, Jesus. And uh, this little boy was a part of a small group in the Dominican Republic. We spent a week there. We go visit homes. We go and share the gospel every single day. And we have a camp, three days. Get to do a lot of fun stuff, a lot of arts and crafts. And one of the students uh, that was working with little Jesus was named Will. And it was just a joy not only to see the fun and the fellowship, but at the end of that week in June, Jesus put his faith in Christ. He prayed with Will and is being followed up with our leaders there. And even more, just in this past March, even though we don't always see the fruit, we saw Midalina and Francis also put their faith in Christ through a team that was serving there. So year-round, our ministry serves vulnerable children and their families. Year-round, the local workers are leading, and um, it's just been a joy to be a part of it. And today, in Sierra Leone, for example, of our six leaders that oversee the ministry, four of them grew up in the ministry 
And so over the last 11 years, these young men and women have been growing up in the gospel and are now are leading locally as leaders of their community in that ministry. So praise God for what he's doing, and, uh, and it's amazing to see it. As we get to Joshua 3 and 4, we see a glimpse of the glorious God we serve. I hope as you were listening to that passage, it's just overwhelming thinking about the sea heaped up, thinking about the people, thousands, passing through. And it's a great story, and it's both an observance of what God did, but also in chapter 4 we see a remembrance of the God that did it. The author's primary concern we see in this passage is not just chronology, here's what happened, but the sovereign intervention of God. Now, as we look at Joshua, if you're thinking about where we are in the Bible and the context, we can look back to chapter 1, verse 1, and we see, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant. So we're in this part of the Bible where Moses has died. Joshua is tied to the previous book of Deuteronomy in chapter 34. We see that Moses was 120 years old, and he was not to end the promised land. But Moses was the one whom God knew face to face, we see in Deuteronomy 34, verse 10. Moses was incomparable, incomparable to anyone. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, we see in Deuteronomy 34, verse 11. Moses' stature, who he was, was very impressive. Yet his death did not cripple the nation of Israel. Make no mistake, in that first chapter of Joshua, we see Moses' name 11 times. But God is the main character, and what is and will come, and what has come for Israel is because of God. So you can just imagine as you're reading through Deuteronomy, getting into Joshua, there's probably dismay. Moses had died, but the promise, the promise that God had made lives on. This is the end of this era, but there's an endurance for his promise. Calvin says it this way, this suggests a very useful reflection that while men are cut off by death and fail in the middle of their career, the faithfulness of God never fails. We get to chapter 2 and we see the story of Rahab. I had the privilege of sharing about this passage last summer uh, here at CRC. And there's quite a bit of drama and tension throughout this chapter 2. Aside from Joshua, Rahab is the only one named in chapter 2. Now think about chapter 3 and 4. Who is named? It tells us something. It's as if in chapter 2 the writer is hiding the names intentionally of the spies, and only later in chapter 6 of Joshua do we actually find out they're even young men. Joshua's commission of the spies in verse 1 and the report back in verse 22 through 24 are bookends of a lengthy dialogue with Rahab that dominates chapter 2. The verses are central to the narrative, and in verse 
chapter 2, verse 11, we see this. The Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. This is Rahab saying this. He is a God who owns, end quote, he is a God who owns and oversees the whole universe, but works in lives and births faith in the most unexpected people, Rahab. In chapter 2, verse 24, we then tie into where we are in chapter 3. The spies report, and they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of this. So here's the question. How will they enter the land? We kind of have our context, our bearings of where we are, and I just wanted to point out four things in these two chapters. I'll have to go pretty fast because it's a lot of text, but we really can see there's a big connection between the two. First, we're going to see the assurance, the assurance of God's power, verses 1 through 3 in chapter 3. Second, we're going to see an awe at God's holiness, this word consecrate, verses 4 through 8. Third, we're going to see the surprise of God's method, verses 9 through 17. And fourth, we're going to see a remembrance, a remembrance of God's goodness in chapter 4, and we're going to tie in chapter 5, verse 1. So we start out in chapter 3, and we see Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and they lodged there before they passed over. So just imagine this scene. They've been in this place. We read in Numbers and Deuteronomy. They've been there for a time. The sun is coming up. They're six miles east of Jordan. By now, the details of the spies' report have probably gone throughout the camp, and they have a distant glimpse of the landscape of Canaan rising up to the west of the Jordan River. This episode marks long, the long-awaited historic transition from the wilderness to the promised land. A transition began in Exodus from from Egypt. Indeed, the Red Sea and the Jordan crossings, uh, crossings form a bookend around the long story of how they finally arrive in Canaan. This story presents the episode not primarily of a massive military invasion, although we hear about military and we hear about 40,000, but it's a religious event. The people must ritually prepare themselves, we'll see in verse 5, because of the amazing things about to appear and show the holy presence of God himself. The ark's dominant role, the ark of the covenant, symbolizes the same presence of God. Now, my son and I started watching the Indiana Jones series, and obviously in there we have one of the movies about the ark of the covenant. So oftentimes, we think of the ark in terms of what we've seen in films or TV or, or whatever, but here it's pretty amazing. Just in these, this chapter, we see, in the two chapters, we see the ark is mentioned actually 17 times. The writer basically never loses sight of the ark. It's a sign of God's presence among his people, and it's always going to be in the front, literally in the front. And we see and we're reminded that God himself, God is the one leading his people into Canaan with the ark there. They ordered the people to watch the ark with its priestly bearers to follow in verse 3. 
The, con- the comment marks the book's first mention of the Ark of the Covenant in this book. The well-known golden box will figure prominently in the upcoming events and the conquest of Jericho. Most of us are familiar with that story in chapter 6 ahead of us. The Ark symbolizes God's very presence. We get this from Exodus 25:22. It contains three symbols, and even in Hebrews 9, verses 4 and 5, we hear reference back. There's the tablet of the Ten Commandments. There's Aaron in his high priestly rod and a jar of manna. The ark was to be carried with poles in front of the people and was not to be touched. The Old Testament writer narrates this long-storied history. We remember its construction happened back at Mount Sinai by Bezalel in Exodus 25. Its placement ends up being in the tabernacle, in the most holy place we see in Exodus 26. And its role is the place where God spoke to Israel through Moses. It's the place where the tablets, the Ten Commandments are held. And then it guides. It guides Israel through the wilderness we see in Numbers chapter 10. So we see God's sovereign leadership before this coming invasion. God led Israel out of Egypt and through the wilderness, and now it will lead them across Canaan. Surprisingly, Israel is to follow at about 2,000 cubits. How far is that? Probably my four kiddos would ask me. It's about half a mile. Just to give you a a glimpse, I was just even thinking about this this morning. We drive back and forth to my in-laws, and they live in Mississippi. The Mississippi River Bridge is two miles long from end to end. So quite a distance, and when you think about the Jordan River, at this point, we later find out how wide it was because of the spring waters. It's probably about a mile wide where they cross. Keeping their distance is a practical purpose, and this is their first time in Canaan. Not only is the distance important as they stay behind the ark, but also we see their attitude. It's one thing for God to lead them. It's quite another that Israel would actually follow. Thus, this command of God leading and Israel following sets a pattern for the events to follow. We must always follow Israel or follow uh, God, and we must always depend on His presence. This consistent obedience is actually going to set apart, if you think about it, the generation that's here and the generation that was before them. This story reminds God, the people of God about his greatness and his faithfulness. We see God's power. As uh, Del Davis, a commentator, writes, the whole affair here, the whole affair is Yahweh's feet, and the Israel, Israelites, though active, are still primarily spectators. So then we get into an awe for God's holiness. It's so fascinating. We see in verse 5, God says, and commands, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. God will soon do marvels among you, promises the close proximity of God to his people. The root word here is actually from our English, you would use the words consecrate, sanctify, holy, or sacred. At this point, you can actually think back to Joshua 2, 9 through 11, as we're reading through this, Rahab's confession 
actually details this very wonder that they're about to see of the drying up of the water. Rahab dictates back to the Red Sea crossing, and now here we are landing at the Jordan. The threat is that the Lord could break out against them, we see from back in Exodus 19, that God's holiness could ravage the people. So to avoid anything like this, like Exodus 19, Israel must become ritually clean. They must consecrate themselves. This would probably be a ritual washing, commonly preceding God revealing himself to his people. We see that in Leviticus chapter 20. The core idea is that separation from things that are unclean or, un, or that are common. It would be the idea of not being contaminated, contaminating the relationship that you had with a perfect God. The proper preparation would have been extensive and ritual, uh, rigorous ritual preparation, including washings, abstinence from sexual relations, and probably abstinence from foods. God had instructed the Israelites in a similar way, similar way at the Mount Sinai. The re- requirement for ritual pur- purity signals that this river crossing is a solemn religious act, not just a military one. So then we get this next stage, this surprise. So we see in verse 9, And Joshua said to the people, Come here and listen to the words of your God. We see a call to listen. We see a promise of God's presence. And we see a promise that God will defeat the inhabitants in these verses, verses 9 through 17. It's surprising. What's about to be said is important, and therefore Joshua calls it to their attention. The living God is among you, verse 10. The reference here to the living God is most likely to, in contrast, Israel's living powerful God from the dead false gods of the seven peoples that are named, all those names that we struggle to pronounce. The other uses of this idea in the Old Testament usually contrast between Israel's God and the pagan gods, and that our God, the living God, is not like those gods of the nations. Rather, he was powerful. He was living. He was able to affect the type of miracle that we see here. So he was among them. He was in their midst, and he is affirming the promise of presence that was made to Joshua. If you were just to look back in chapter 1 and verses 5 and 9, God had made a promise. Moses was gone, but that God was still fulfilling his promise. So, finally, I love that in Scripture we see these surprising words, and it says, God will not fail. God will not fail to accomplish what he had already promised. So we see in verse 10, And here is how you should know that I am the living God among you, and that he without fail will drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. God is going to accomplish it. In verse 11, so we see this interesting description of the ark. Not only do we hear about the ark of the covenant, but we also see this phrase, the Lord of all the earth. You might remember Rahab and her description of who God is and her faith in Christ refers to this type of God. It's a rare title. We see it again in verse 13. And it really shows this idea of all the earth, that God has dominion, unlike us dominion over all the earth. 
He owns everything in it. He has authority over all of it. And if he wants to give Canaan to his people, that's what he'll do. Whatever happens when the ark enters the Jordan, it comes not from the people, but because of the sovereign God they serve. Now, we get to verse 13. And the waters came down from above, and they shall stand in a heap. This idea of heap, the English word we're using here, it appears again in verse 16. It ties the event to Exodus, to the Red Sea, where it appears in Exodus chapter 15, verse 8. A wondrous thing, again, to God, akin or like God's deliverance from the pursuing Egyptians takes place. Again, it's like a bookend. We see the Exodus crossing, and we see the Canaan uh, crossing into Canaan from the Jordan. In short, the river's waters are to be cut off. They are to stand up, and it's incredibly stunning what God does before they enter into Canaan. In verse 14, we see this. So the people set out from their tents, and they passed over the Jordan. With the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as they bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of the harvest, and the waters came from above, stood, and rose up in a heap far away. It's really interesting that as you're reading this, the writer's just giving you phrase after phrase after phrase. So when the people set out from their tents, and the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as some of the park, the, those bearing the Ark had come far to the Jordan, and the feet, it's just building up what's happening. But then we have this little parenthetical statement. Now just remember, this is when the Jordan overflows. So you might say, well, what's the significance here? When the people came to cross during the Exodus, we think of the sea, and we think of the massive amount of water. Here, this little note stand, should stand out, and it would to the reader's minds, because where are they crossing? Well, number one, they're crossing below the place where they normally would, where the spies crossed forts back in chapter 2. And here, we see this time being the, the springtime, when there have been so much water uh, that would be coming through. And most of the writers, or commentary writers, would say that probably we're dealing with about a mile wide to cross. Now, today's Jordan, if you were to look at it, you would notice that it's not quite as wide because it's been dammed for many years in Israel. But at this time, there was not that, that case, and we're finding out how dramatic it would have been. So, at this time, what's amazing is we see the river, and then we see the priests. We see the priests enter the river, and as if there's a little bit of a battle going on. The river is going to stop, and the priests are going to go through. Who but God could accomplish this? It's as if the river being full flood with a mile wide is just too overwhelming to cross. The people are standing back a half mile, and as they're coming to it, it's not just going to be the water, but the thing you can realize is that there's going to be all the debris that comes from a mile wide of flooding. And so they come up, and they put their souls in, and they come to the water's edge. And at this instant, there's a clash. We see 
between the ark of God and the river that's overflowing. Now, the city of Adam that's noted in verse 18, or in the, in the verse 16, is about 18 miles north of where they are in Jericho. We don't know exactly where this is, but if you think about it, 18 miles of water stopped. Now, if you think about the Jericho, people in Jericho or anyone in the land of Canaan, what would they be thinking about? They would never have expected this. It's very surprising that the people would not cross farther north or at the fords that were common. But God is doing something miraculously. And so in verse 17 we see, the priest bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. Again, the narrative focused on the ark and the priests. We have no names, but we see what God is doing. It's really interesting that in verse 17 and 16, there's a little bit of a play on words that you can see in the English. The priest stood in the midst of the river. And as the waters stood in a heap in verse 16, it's the same Hebrew word. And then we see the priest stood on dry ground as the people crossed the dry ground. And as Moses turned, uh, and just as Moses had been on dry land. And so we have these interesting comparisons of the dry ground of the river that had just been flowing. And then Moses, the same word was used of the dry land whenever the people crossed. And then in verse 16 and 17, we see another interesting comparison. It says the word, the water, was completely cut off. And then at the end of verse 17, we see the whole nation had completely finished crossing. So it's kind of interesting that we see all of these pieces, all of these parts that are comparing the water and the power of God and the people and where they are. And step by step, God is at work. When we see this idea of dry ground, it's pretty fascinating to think about the river coming, the water stopping, the priests step in, their feet are wet, their toes, you would imagine, are muddy. And yet, what do we see? We see that it is dry ground. To think about how God not only completes this miraculous sign by stopping the river, but even drying the very steps that they walk in is powerful. So the question stands. As the people come, they prepare themselves to cross. As they cross, they have the symbol of the presence of God. As they cross, it's very clear that the waters are cut off and the people begin to cross. God is at work in all of it. And so the question comes, do you prepare yourself before a holy God? How do we and when do we prepare ourselves? You have to often think with this type of passage, if we're not impressed with the awe of God, with all before God, is it because we have not prepared ourselves to come see him as he is? Could it be we no longer detect the working of God in routine life because we have not prepared ourselves to expect the marvelous work of God in everyday life? So finally, we get to chapter 4. It's really interesting here. There's actually a, a flow to the, the text that you can see 
in verses 6 and 7. It's what they call a chiastic structure. And so we see this idea of the, they went with the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It's right in the center of verses 6 and 7, and it really concentrates what's being said around God's power. It provides an explanation concerning the significance of the memorial that they're going to build, the 12 stones. It's something that will put focus on how they're going to educate future generations, and that the 12 stones that come from the Jordan, they're going to represent that God was with his people. And so we see before the Ark of the Covenant in verse 7, and then just before we see the waters of the Jordan were cut off. If you look right after it, you see when it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. And then it says, so these stones shall be, and prior to that, what do these stones mean? And then it ends, to the people of, the Israel, of Israel memorial forever. And it began in verse 6, that it may be a sign or a memorial. And so we see this emphasis that's being put here on the presence of God. Joshua explains the, the, uh, the presence of God and the purpose as a sign. It's something that is so important to the people. They serve not only as a sign, but also a memorial in chapter 4, verse 7. So we see the text assumes that down the road, they're going to visit this place, that for many generations, they're going to come back to the memorial, and that it's going to be alive with meaning as maybe a young child comes and sees these stones and says to a father, why are these here? And so they're meant to be remembered. Then in verse 10 in chapter 4, we see that the people pass over in haste. This verse ends so abruptly in chapter 4. The people cross the, the, the river. The uh, astounding way in which it happens as the water's built up. And so they come here. And because of their obedience, God performed this miracle. And just to remind ourselves and not get ahead, but to look ahead... In chapter 7, we see what happens when the people do not honor God and His holiness. This is an amazing response um, that God is going to work among His people. Now, in verse 13, we see about 40,000 is the number that crosses. And you could basically say that the writer here is saying a huge army. It's probably not an exact amount. But when they cross, they're crossing before their commander. Not Joshua, but God. These comments cast Israel cross, Israel's crossing was not just a migration, but an invasion. So God is with his people. The people are going into the land of Canaan, and God has his people prepared. But he is the one who is leading. Finally, in verse 19, we see, the people come up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month. Now, what's interesting about this is that this points us back. If we were to go back to Exodus 12, we would see it's a preparation for the Passover of Exodus. So the time is spring of the year. The waters are in full flow. God stops them even though they're so great. And yet we get this little snippet of information that this is going to be looking back at the Passover of Exodus and looking forward to chapter 4 where they celebrate it again. Joshua's statement to his people is saying, hey, for your children, what do these stones mean? 
And we see a repetition of this in verse 6 and 7, and then in verse 21. The language, though, changes in 21. And I want to notice one little thing there, that the answer is to, in the Hebrew, inform or to improve their knowledge. So what we see as it's repeated in chapter 4, we not only see the same statement as a child asks, what do these stone means? But we see that the answer is that the parent should inform and improve their knowledge. It is meant not to just say something, but it's meant to mean something. So Joshua states a great purpose in this. Yahweh is dreadful and breathtaking in his supremacy, but yet he wants to inform all the people of the earth that the hand of the Lord is powerful. This is what the children are to know. The fear of the Lord is to hold him in highest respect, and yet the children ask and the adult answers. It should rekindle their awe of who God is. So the swollen Jordan bars any chance of a retreat, if you think about it. Israel's only once do-or-die crossing of the banks of the Red Sea, or of the Jordan. The memory of the miracle of the Jordan is an amazing thing, and it should strengthen God's, Israel's confidence in God. So as we see the purpose of the miracle in chapter 3, it's now accomplished. The people on the other side, we see in verse 5-1, are terrified. It reinforces that God has given. He has given the land. There's a commentator named Butler who says, before Israel even fought a single battle, the entire land is theirs for the taking. We see God's great deliverance. And then finally, we also see that all the, earth, all the people of the earth may know. So in this passage, it's quite fascinating. There's a lot to it, a couple of chapters of text. But we quickly see an assurance of God's power. We also see the people take all of his holiness. And as I ask the question, what do we do before our God? And then we see this surprising method that God uses. And then we see the stones as a remembrance of who God is. Today, as we sing about, we look to Jesus. I love the song, How Deep is Love, How Wide. And we have our hope in Christ. But I've been reading recently Richard Baxter, and his, uh, his words really struck me as I reflect on the power of God and awe of him, and yet, how do we respond? This is what he says. Most of them, Baxter writes, in most places do set their hearts on earthly things. They seek not the first, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, but they look at holiness as a needless thing. Their families are prayerless. Their heartless and lifeless words and their fervent daily prayers are, sorry, uh, or their hearts are, are lifeless words must serve instead of heartly, fer, heartly, hearty, fervent daily prayers. Their children are not taught the knowledge of Christ and the covenant of grace, nor are they brought up in the nurture of the Lord, though he firmly promised all of this. God promised it. So as we look ahead in our lives I think of this passage as a memorial, and we know that we have a memorial as well. 
the Lord's Supper. As we look at the Lord's Supper, it's something that, it's a memorial to the believer's faith, reviewing and teaching, encouraging uh, from the Lord and obedience. We see in 1 Corinthians 11, Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Theologically, we see that there is a confession of God's power in this passage. Control of the natural forces. God chooses to use these forces through his instruments, Joshua and the priests. They are to enable them to attain the promise of God. And so we would be amiss to not remember God and through Christ and his uh, work. We see that even the winds and waves obey him in Matthew chapter 8. So the miracle directed to the people should draw our loyalty towards God. This miracle of this type should remind us of his covenant, and that should also remind us of the appointed leader that God, appointed leader and leaders that God gives us. In John 20, we see this, that those signs they might hear and believe, and that this belief might lead to fullness, to a commitment in Christ. So, I just want to leave us with this. As I thought about this passage, we were singing a song last Sunday. And as we look at God's power, as we look at the role of Joshua, we can think that there actually today is a better leader, and that's Christ. Christ is the true and better Joshua. Joshua was not directly involved in this miracle, even though we see instructions given. But he was to be made great in the eyes of Israel. Joshua claims uh, claim to power, though does not rest on anything he accomplished. He was not the one who gave the ark. He was not the one who stopped the river. He was not the one who led in the future battles. But it was the God that he served. So it rests that God has accomplished what he did at the Jordan. And Joshua and Moses are examples. But the purpose of God's exalting Joshua was not for Joshua's sake. Rather, it was for the larger purpose to know that God was with them. So I just want to repeat the words of that hymn or that song that we sang about the Christ being the true and better Adam. So Christ, the true and better Moses, we think back to Moses' crossing. He's called to lead a people home. He's standing bold on earthly powers, God's great glory to be known. With his arms stretched wide to heaven, you see the waters part in two. But see, the veil is torn forever. Cleansed with blood, we now pass through. Amen, amen, beginning to end. Christ the story, his the glory. Alleluia, amen. So my call to you, my challenge to myself is, how do I view God? Do I view him with awe? Do I have assurance of his power? Am I surprised in the daily things of how he's working? And do I remember his goodness? It's clear what the command is in this passage, not only to us as adults, but to us uh, for our children. And so I would just say, if one of you in this 
room does not know Christ, let me remind you of my story of God's amazing power. I grew up, and when I was a child, I didn't know Christ, and I didn't know his word. But whenever I, by God's appointed work, had the opportunity, God gave me a new friend. And that friend found out that I was not a Christian by getting to know me and having conversations. Through that time, my friend gave me the best thing that he, that, that he or she could have given me, which was God's Word. And so as I got a Bible that I still have and my name written in the front, I began to read the book of Mark. And that was the beginning of a miraculous work in my life. As I read through the book of Mark, about a year later, I too recognized certain things. I realized that Christ is who he said he was. He had lived a perfect life, he had died to his sins, and he had risen again to overcome. And that I needed to put my faith and trust in him. And that's my prayer for you today. May we all look to Jesus, the true and better, true and better than Moses, true and better than Joshua. And Jesus is the one that we now can worship and sing to. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this story. God, you are the true and better. God, we're not left on the other side of the Jordan. But Lord, we see later John the Baptist near the Jordan pointing the way to the true and better Jesus. Lord, today I pray that we would be in awe of how you work. That we would wonder at how you're doing things in the day-to-day. Lord, may we not be so used to not looking for you that the routine, thing, routine things in our life don't show glimpses of you. And Lord, may we put our faith in you, Lord. May you accomplish more than we can ever hope and imagine. Lord, you can overcome waves and wind in the sea, and we saw that in your word. Lord, may we put our trust in you today. And may we see the God who is sovereign. Amen.